This is The Bottom Line, a show designed to help Australian businesses succeed. On the show, you'll hear from leading Australian business owners as they share the lessons they've learned building their companies. You'll learn from their successes as well as some of the challenges they faced along the way. We also talk to experts from a range of fields who share specialised techniques you can use to improve your business. I'm your host, Savan Tuna, and I'm a director at Alexander Spencer, and I'm really passionate about helping Australian businesses succeed. Welcome to the second part of my two-part conversation with Justin Sung, the founder of JTT and Finding Gravity, as well as the co-founder of I Can Study. In today's episode, you'll hear Justin explain the difference between time management and task management. He also shares his biggest tips on how to note-take effectively, and Justin provides some useful advice for achieving a state of deep work. Let's jump in. I want to go into the next topic around note-taking because, I mean, it's something that I've been doing a lot of. Never used to do it well and read a book with Richard Branson, who's a Mm. big note-taker. And and what would happen is I'd talk to people, do mentor meetings, staff, clients, and just everything was everywhere. So I got this sort of technique of note-taking. But in terms of learning and linking note-taking to learning Mm. and writing your own notes, can you talk us about that and the connection of note-taking to learning? Yeah. Note-taking has a terrible reputation because we go through school, we write all these notes, and half the time we never even read the notes again. And then learning and note-taking end up becoming this sort of synonymous beast but it's not the same thing. You know, right? just because you wrote notes doesn't mean that you've actually learned. Often when I talk to students, I'll say, well, cool, can you teach me about this a little bit? And they'll say, no, 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 I haven't actually learned it yet. All I've done is write notes. <laughs> you know? And they spent two hours at the end of the day after school, they're writing notes. But you're telling me that you haven't even used that time? If this was a professional setting and someone said, I've just spent two hours doing this task that didn't contribute to the most important outcome at all. It's just like, well, why? So note-taking should be facilitating what's happening in our brain. Either it's a reference for the future or it's to facilitate our cognitive process. And it can be both simultaneously. The biggest tip that I have is do not write notes linearly. So knowledge, like I said before, it's that sea of knowledge. Knowledge is not linear. So information that was presented to you linearly, it didn't want to be presented linearly. The expert that's teaching you, that wrote the book, their knowledge is not linear. They understand it freely. They had to force it into this linear format because printing press can only operate that way. So as a result, our job is not to take this linear information and then store it linearly. Our job is to then try to get to the same level of expertise of the person that was teaching it to us. We have to deconstruct it and then we have to reconstruct it. So your notes should always be nonlinear because knowledge is always nonlinear unless you're literally learning a single fact. The other point is minimize the amount of words that you'll use. So there are studies that have been done on word count and it tends to show that people that have a higher word count in their notes will perform worse because the hypothesis is that if your word count is higher, you're not actually thinking about and processing the information as deeply. There's this huge sort of wave of note-taking apps and software. And I think it's a little bit unethical that they're marketing as a learning tool. I know behind the scenes of a lot of these softwares, there's no one with learning expertise in the (laughs) team at all. Uh, So... (laughs) The software that's been marketed as sort of a learning tool, people are saying, oh, it's marketed as a learning tool, therefore it must be good for my learning. And then so they're sitting there using this and they're setting up their notes and all this and looks really nice and pretty as well-organized and hierarchies. 
At the end of the day, I would consider myself a high performing learner. I don't use any of those notes. I don't use any of those apps. I don't use that software. The most important thing is what happens in your brain. And even if you're able to type your notes much, much faster, if you're a fast typer and you can get down more information, it doesn't translate to actual learning that's happening. And in some cases, it's actually the opposite. So a good learner thinks lots, writes little, as opposed to a poor learner, where if you look at them, you'll think, man, that person's studious. They're paying attention. They're doing so well because they're constantly writing notes. And I don't know if you've maybe recognized this sometimes in the people that you've worked with, especially juniors, especially new graduates that have just come fresh from academia, where they'll be in a meeting, they're writing notes all the time. They're constantly writing notes. Well, they're not writing notes and you say, hey, you should write some notes. And then they just switch into this <laughs> mode where they're just transcribing everything. And at the end of the day, it's like the performance, the actual ability to use the knowledge there is just, it's really not that deep. And they're often flicking back at their notes. They're saying, oh, wait, oh, I wrote some notes on this. And they're saying, oh yeah, they're reading it. And then they're just sort of regurgitating what was there or they're able to make just very simple connections. I think a problem is that that's so normal. We just say, that's just how it is. Beginners tend to be like that and you get more experience and you get better and better and better. No, 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 no. That's not the case. Beginner learners can be like that. But you can, again, as I said, have a very high level of mastery with new information in a very short period of time using the right methods. Yeah, I love it. I want to change topics a little bit and I want to talk about time management. Our audience are business owners and I think business owners are one of the most poor time people in the world. And I know I suffer from that myself. I mean, I need to have a remote control that's pauses time like yeah. the movie click how do you manage time and why is time management such a problem for everyone i think time management is an issue because people overvalue time management there's a difference between time management and task management time management often involves time blocking creating very good schedules managing the way that you're blocking out your time and, and shuffling things around there's a lot of micromanagement there time management is diminishing returns beyond a certain threshold if you've got a schedule and that schedule is relatively representative of what you want to do. And if you've got blocks of time set aside so that you can focus on something, and those blocks do not by any means have to be accurate, that's probably enough. You're not really going to get much more returns for the amount of effort that you need to put into it. The much more effective thing is task management. So really, really good prioritization. I've never, ever, in my thousands of people that I've worked with, I've never met a single person that came to me that said that they had issues with time management, but did really effective prioritization strictly. And when the stakes are high, it's a bit more brutal. Sometimes there's no situation where you feel good about what you've prioritized. It's just a matter of picking what feels the least bad. So there are all these things that are important to do. Let's break it down into a binary question. Is it possible for you to get all of these things done to a high quality? The answer is no. Therefore, you have to cut things out. It's just a matter of fact. An issue is that people will try to get all of it done anyway. And now you're in this cycle where you're like, oh, I had to schedule and then I just didn't do it. And now you feel terrible. To-do list just constantly grows and it just becomes this whale of a to-do list that will never die. <laughs> you know? Once you hit the triple digits, it's like, well, your life is over. <laughs> so instead, we need to be really, really strict with the prioritization and understanding that there are certain tasks that, yes, they're urgent and they need to get done. But there are certain tasks that are not necessarily urgent. This is coming to Eisenhower type things which is popular prioritization matrix. There are certain tasks that are not urgent, but if you were to do them, it would make the other urgent tasks unnecessary or you wouldn't have those issues in the first place. So if you're on a boat and it's leaking, the urgent task is to bucket that water out. But letting the water fill for a while so that you can plug the hole, that puts you in a position where the urgent task doesn't exist anymore. I call this concept urgency trapping. 
if we're always working on only what's urgent without considering the future version of us, whether that future version of us will still have these urgent matters, that's a negative spiral. Because if you're never completing everything, then the list is growing. If you're stuck in urgency, then the list will continue to grow faster than you can clear it. And then that can lead to a lot of burnout. That can lead to a lot of bad habits in terms of procrastinating and managing time and motivational issues and things like that. But sometimes you got to bite the bullet and say, I'm willing to take this loss in order to put myself in a position where I can then recover that loss later when I don't have to have so much urgent stuff on my plate. It's a very different mindset to have. It's difficult for a lot of people. Yeah. I want to talk about prioritization a little bit more around focus management. Like obviously the other book that I've, that I love is around deep work and setting aside sort of that thing that's the most important, it's going to change your needle the most and focus. So how do we prioritize and put attention to our focus and focus management? And you do talk about focus a lot. Can you sort of take us through the journey around focus and, and linking it to prioritization? Okay. So deep work and the concept of deep work, this is a huge field and it's so complicated to the point where no one really knows how to do it consistently. We know that the environment makes a huge difference. So my number one tip here is add a task that is important to you, not urgent, but it's important and it's worth doing to create an environment where you know that you're not going to be distracted by things. Keep a distraction sheet. So when you're trying to do deep work, note what are the things that you're getting distracted by? Can you change the environment so that those distractions do not bother you in the first place? So often the tasks that we can prioritize to put ourselves in the position where deep work is more easily accessible because it's very difficult to force ourselves into a state of deep work, but it is possible to put ourselves in a position where we can enter into that state with a little bit less friction. So it could be, are you getting enough sleep? Is your environment good enough? Are you at a certain threshold of nutritional you know, level? Are you being distracted by your coworkers or notifications or other types of distractions? The task is, number one, identify what those things are. The next task is change the environment, modify the workplace or the settings or communicate with other people to set boundaries in a way that allows you to have that space. And then deep work should be the thing that comes a little bit more naturally. It should be the outcome of it. The issue is that people will prioritize deep work in and of itself and they'll block it out on their schedule and say, this is important for me to get done. But if the quality of the work is not there, then that time that's being blocked out for this deep work doesn't produce the outcome that you need to. That also feels bad. So first we need to be in a position where that deep work is possible. And then we can prioritize that work and we can set it out in our schedule. From 1 to 4 p.m., I'm going to focus on this task. And then when we enter into that state, we can actually do it and execute it effectively. Usually if we're in a good environment, if we've structured it effectively, the deep work can come. Even in really busy settings, you know, there's a lot you can do, you know, do not disturb, you know, headphones, white noise, a sign outside your door. Some offices that I've, uh, I've worked with before have implemented a post-it note system where they'll have a certain color post-it note that they put up and they know that if that's on their monitor or their desk or somewhere, that's the physical do not disturb sign. And so they'll, you know, use simple things like that because everyone in the workplace knows that deep work is important. Everyone is supportive of things that would in increase deep work. The managers want more deep work. The leaders want more deep work. The employees want, everyone wants it. But sometimes you just don't know what you can do to do it. And then everyone is just frustrated together. Yeah, I, I agree with that. It's funny, the environment's a good one because for me, I do my best work at home. Generally, kids are at school, my wife's at work. And the environment during COVID, I set it up to be really fun. So it's an awesome environment. And I love it because the, the biggest distraction wasn't emails, the pinging, the mobile phone, the phone calls. I was good with that. It was more 
being accessible to staff. We have a very open door mm. policy. It's been something ingrained in this business for a long time. So doors always open. I'm trying to do something deep and I'm like just getting dragged into so many different conversations and you feel bad. It's that whole, I'll look after you and you kind of, you don't say no. Yeah. And so I'm like, bugger that. I'm just going home. Yeah. So find deep work for me is the distractions of the colleagues. But you've given some good tips around. And I think if you educate your staff around what deep work means, then you can have these color coordinates or even just the signs up and people understand what it means. That's really good advice. I'm going to try to do deep work in the office because I need to be here more and more these days. And I'll try some of those techniques. My last topic before we wrap it up is stress and burnout. I remember back to my year 12 days and even during uni uni exams, the stress you would see on everyone's face was like incredible. I do. I'm a big believer that you need stress to perform. Mm. You see Olympic athletes just before they're about to jump into the pool when they're, you know, you can see that it is that whether it's stress or the nerves or, or the excitement, it could be all those words could mean that. But I know that that is an element of success. Can you talk about how we manage stress so it's a positive thing and how mm. we can actually gain from that. So the idea of stress is that it's not necessarily a bad thing. It's only a bad thing if it has a negative impact on you. I think an overlooked aspect is that if you want to live a fulfilling life, you need to have stress because the human sensation of fulfillment is often derived from overcoming a challenge and that the definition of challenge is relative to what your capability is. We don't find fulfillment and satisfaction from doing, no one's sitting there tying their shoelaces 12 <laughs> hours a day and feeling, I have such a satisfying, fulfilling life. So I love that analogy. I want to use that. So because we're trying to pick a path of fulfillment, we're picking a path of challenge, which means there's going to be stress. But we have to recognize this is the stress we chose. This is the stress we wanted. There is always the option to just remove the stress by removing the challenge. You can. Sometimes people say, oh, no, I can't, I can't, I can't. You can, you may just not want to deal with the consequences of that decision. So you might say, my job is really stressful. Then leave your job. That is an <laughs> option. In most countries, there's no massive repercussion from leaving your job. You could get work somewhere else that has a more supportive culture or whatever that you feel is going to be relevant for you. Or you may change professions. But if you're not willing to do that, then you have to be honest with yourself. I have the option, however, the work involved in finding a new job or whatever it is, that is something that I would like less than trying to just deal with the stress of this job. It doesn't mean that you have to feel great about the stress of the job, but you have to understand that that is a stress that you chose. In some cases, you find, you know what? I could deal with the stress, but at the end of the day, the outcome is not even worth it for me because I'm not even finding it fulfilling to begin with. In that case, it's the stress you chose, but now that you have tried to engage in it a bit more, we're realizing, you know what, this doesn't really align with me. Even if I could manage the stress in a perfect world where I wasn't stressed, but I could still achieve the outcome, I'm not really excited about that. In that case, we've learned a little bit more about ourselves. We've learned about our work. There's a realignment that needs to happen. So you can leave and pick a new type of stress, a new type of challenge. There's a lot of barriers and hesitancy to that because of the sunk cost fallacy where I put in so much time, so much effort in this already, then pivot to something else and something new. Well, look, again, you got to pick your stress somehow. 
Are you going to deal with the stress of doing work that is unfulfilling and unsustainable? Or are you going to deal with the stress of trying to create a path for yourself and something new? For me, leaving medicine after having, you know, $100,000 plus a student loan, plus, you know, huge, you know, locked in career and seven years at university at publications and medicine to go from that to say, okay, I'm just going to go through entrepreneurship and education where I had no, I had little formal qualification and education at the time. That was a big choice. But for me, it made perfect sense because I'd rather deal with the stress of entrepreneurship and education because it's the one that I find the most alignment with. And on a daily basis, whenever I feel that stress, I can see it in a way as this is a side effect of the challenge. This is what I wanted. And if I don't want that anymore, I'm always free to make a different decision. So I think there is a lot of empowerment to viewing stress as something that actually is in your control. Yeah, I I love that. It's so enlightening the way you said it that I've never looked at stress as it's your choice to be stressed because of the outcome. I really like that. It's a good one. If you don't want to be stressed, generally you have the option. Mm. And I do like the other thing that you said really resonated was that we only get fulfilled if something is challenging, right? So the shoelace one was awesome, but no one celebrates the championship of an NBA final or whatever, but they do because it's hard and yeah. it's not everyone gets it. And you got to do hours and hours of training to get to that. And that's why they celebrate so hard. So I think if you reframe that word stress in the way that just the way you spoke about it, I just love that. It's so cool. My last question is about burnout. And I don't know if it's linked to stress, but mm. look, we live in Australia. Everyone's overworked where there's not a lot of staff availability in a lot of industries at the moment. So I feel like a lot of my clients, so it's a question for my clients. They're you know, I talk to them and I've got 40-year-olds wanting to sell their business because mm. they did stuff. They're burnt out. Let's talk about burnout and what's your tips on that. And then, yeah, and I think that might be the time ran out, Justin. Yeah. So again, burnout, big topic. I'm not going to be able to do it full justice, but there is this thing called the burnout cycle. You never get burnout on your first rodeo. You get burnout on your 183rd rodeo. So the first tip is recognize when you're on the path to burnout, because it's always easier to change things when you're doing that. So the path to burnout means there is a high amount of effort. There's a high reliance on being very motivated in order to achieve a certain outcome. If that combination occurs, then that's a recipe for burnout because motivation inherently is not something that should be depended on sort of on a daily basis. If you're waking up every day and you require motivation to get out of bed, then that is going to fizzle out at a certain point. And yes, you might take your strategic sick day every now and again because you need that sleep in. However, that's just not going to be sustainable because number one, you're going to run out of sick days. And number two, (laughs) at a certain point, it's not going to be enough. Everyone knows the feeling of going on leave and then coming back after like three, four weeks sometimes and then coming back and being like, oh, I'm fresh and I'm rejuvenated. And then three days in, they're like, oh, no, I need, I need, I need another holiday. Yeah. (laughs) Well, sometimes you don't even feel refreshed. You get to the end of the month and you think, right, I'm now in a position where I'm ready to start relaxing. And then you need another month. These are all signs that we're on that path to burnout. So number one, remove the motivation dependency aspect of it. So that could be about changing processes, changing your systems, changing, you know, staffing, changing structures, whatever it is. Think, what is it that requires me to be so motivated to overcome these challenges. Put yourself in a position where your daily work is not dependent on motivation. Number one, either through automations or processes or technology, or number two, through habits, number three, through delegation, or number four, think about restructuring the process within a task that you still need to do in a way that it generates motivation because it is inherently enjoyable. So if we're doing a task that we're inherently enjoying, it creates more motivation for us rather than pulling that motivation out of us. 
We want that motivation to be a precious resource because push will come to shove one day. And if you are in rock bottom, when that happens, you will not be able to withstand it. That motivation should be guarded as a precious resource, just like how we try to guard our time and our free time and other things that are precious to us. So think about what can generate motivation for us. If we have to do something, is there a way that we can change the way we do it so it's more motivating? This happens a lot with learning. A lot of people find learning dreary and boring and tedious. Actually, the human brain loves learning. What you probably hate is studying. So that might be changing the way you study so it's more authentically learning. Therefore, you would find more intrinsic enjoyment in the process. Now you no longer need motivation. In fact, it's the opposite. You want to do it because you feel that it is motivating. Justin, I have so many more questions I wanted to ask you, but we have run out of time. Thank you so much for taking this precious time out of your day to come into the studio. You're doing an amazing work and helping so many people. Keep doing what you're doing. And I wish you all the success for everything that you do. Thanks for having me on. This is The Bottom Line, a show designed to help Australian businesses succeed. This podcast was produced by accountancy firm Alexander Spencer. At Alexander Spencer, we've been helping business owners realise their goals since 1952. And we play a pivotal role in developing, implementing and supervising the business goals and strategies of our clients. To find out how we can help your business succeed, head to our website, alexanderspencer.com.au. To make sure you don't miss an episode of The Bottom Line, be sure to subscribe to or follow the show in your podcast app. And while you're there, leave us a five-star review. It really helps others find the show. I'm Savan Tuna, and we'll be back next episode with more tips to help you transform your business. And that's The Bottom Line.